I think division, right, just in society, in our lives, with, among friends, among family, division in general is probably something that we have just grown accustomed to living with. And I was thinking about that this week, and I was trying to pinpoint the moment when, when really the, the veil fell from before my eyes, and I really saw the potential for division in my life with my friends and with my family members. And, and I mean, don't you feel like we have that moment in life where all of a sudden it's like the rubber hits the road with this, and you realize, oh, wait, these may be some of my best friends, but that doesn't mean that we can't be divided, And what I realized is that I think that moment for me was when I was in fifth grade, and I'm going to date myself here because when I was in fifth grade, it was 2004, and that was when George W. Bush and John Kerry were running against each other in the presidential election. That was Bush's second term election. And I had never cared about politics. I didn't really know anything about politics. My extent to knowledge of politics as a fifth grader was bumper stickers that I could identify as political candidates, but I had no clue who they, who they actually were. And I certainly never felt like politics would be something that could create division between me and my friends until that Election. That was really when it all changed for me. And I think it was just the first time that politics were big enough on the news and in our everyday life that I actually had an, enough awareness as a child to see what was happening around me. And I guess it was also the first time that I and my peers were old enough to actually begin to care just a little bit and at least care enough to copy whatever it was our parents were saying at home and come to school and say that to our, to our friends. I remember it being something that we talked about in class. I'm sure my teacher, whose name was Miss Looney, I mean, come on, fifth grade teacher, legit, her name was Miss Looney. Uh, I'm sure she used it to teach us about the election and the election process and the executive branch of, of the government and all of that fun stuff. But during that time, and I think especially the weeks and days leading up to election day, I remember kids coming to class wearing political candidate shirts, like, like wearing Bush Cheney shirts or Kerry Edwards shirts. And then it all peaked for us at elementary school on our fake election day. I don't know if your schools did this or not, but it seems like every school that I went to growing up, we always had a fake election day that was like interior to, to the school, like maybe the day before the actual election. So we would all go down to the gym and cast our votes, and they announced on the intercom who won and by how much. And oh my gosh, y'all. I remember feeling the division in that. I mean, it was palpable, right? Because when they announced the results of the school election, I don't even remember who won our actual school election, but some kids cheered and stood up like they couldn't contain themselves, and some kids just put their heads down on their desk like the bitterness of, of defeat, right, of the fake elementary school presidential election. But I would imagine if you were a little bit older than me, perhaps, and you think back to that election, that the division was probably palpable in our nation as well. Because I looked back, and this was a really, really close election that was held between Bush and and Kerry. Bush only won 50.7% of the popular vote, and he only carried the Electoral College by 35 votes. I can only imagine the, the division and the bitterness that was felt between the two parties and perhaps the two candidates, if they're being honest with themselves, when it really went down to the wire. And the truth is that if we look at our current election process and our current political atmosphere, it almost makes 2004 look like we were sitting around a campfire singing Kumbaya, doesn't it? Like just a little bit. 
My point is that I think we have become so used to division in our society, especially recently, right, that our threshold for tolerating division is just so very high that we really don't even think twice about it when we face it. And I think, too, it's probably gotten worse since I was a child, but I imagine children being exposed to it younger and younger and younger just because there are fewer and fewer places to hide from it. Which is why I think it's really important for us as a church family to spend some time reading Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, his first letter to that church in in Corinth. Because in this letter to 1 Corinthians that Paul writes, he is writing to a church who are deeply divided. In fact, the whole book, the whole letter of 1 Corinthians is a whole letter about everything it is that is currently dividing the church. Paul spends time in the letter addressing how food practices are dividing the church, how sexual ethics and morals are dividing the church, how worship practices are dividing the church. And today, for our passage in particular, and I think it's going to be one that's very familiar to a lot of you, you've heard this passage before, Paul's, I think, trying to make a comment on how party lines are currently dividing the church. We're going to be in this letter for four weeks leading up to Lent because, again, I think it is really important for us to hear the voice of Paul writing to an early church and allow his voice to speak into our Christian community today. So we're in 1 Corinthians, we're in chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 10 through 17. Let's read it together. Now I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you be in agreement and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be knit together in the same mind and the same purpose. For it has been made clear to me by Chloe's people that there are quarrels among you, my brothers and sisters. What I mean is that each of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas. Or I belong to Christ. Has Christ been divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanas, but beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to proclaim the gospel, and not with eloquent wisdom, so that the cross of Christ might not be emptied of its power. This is the word of God for you, the people of God, and we say together, thanks be to God. Don't you love it when you kind of see a little bit of sass in Paul's letters? Like, you you can tell that he went a little stream of consciousness just for a second, and he rambles a little bit, and you, like, kind of see his personality come out. I love that. I don't know why. It's like, it makes it so much more human to me when I can kind of see his personality come out. And I think we see that in this letter, because I think Paul is really upset with what he is seeing come out of this church that he planted just a few years ago. Paul leads the passage appealing to his brothers and sisters in Corinth that in the name of Jesus Christ, would you please all just be in agreement? Would there be no divisions among you? He even says that the goal for this church, for the people who claim to be a people that follow Jesus, is for them to be of the same mind and of the same purpose. And if you keep reading, you find out that they are currently in a season where they are not all in agreement. You see, Paul has heard some rumors 
from Chloe's people. And Chloe is a female church leader that Paul kind of left in charge in his absence, especially to be someone to give him information like this so that he would know what the pulse was of this early church. So he's heard from Chloe's people that there are quarrels among this early church in Corinth. And what he means by that is that he's hearing rumors that some of them are saying, I belong to Paul. And some of them are saying, no, 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 I belong to Apollos. And even still, some of them are saying, well, I belong to Cephas. And only a few are saying, well, I belong to Christ. You see, Paul has heard that people are dividing themselves into factions based on who they prefer or who they consider themselves to be a follower of. And I think this is really interesting because if we let it, I think this can really speak into how our political climate currently feels as a society. I think it can really parallel how our political system can divide us as a people of faith. But I think for you to see that, like I have seen that this week, I need to tell you just a little bit more about who some of these people are and why folks may have chosen to claim to follow them. Apollos, we learn later in 1 Corinthians, and by how he is talked about in the book of Acts when his name comes up telling the story of the early church, we learn that he was very powerful in public debate, that he was an eloquent man, that he was really just a pure force when it came to rhetoric. That was all the stuff that I read in commentaries, but what I denoted from that was that Apollos was a smooth talker, right? We know smooth talkers. It's hard to not want to be on the side of the person that can speak with the most fluidity, right? And and with a smoothness, it's almost captivating, isn't it? I mean, they they pull you into their fold and they just, you want to be on their team, don't you? That was Apollos. He was a smooth talker. He was someone that was friends with Paul, but because of the gifts and graces that God had given him, I think probably unbeknownst to him, he had begun to captivate some people. So much so that when they were asked who they followed, they would say, well, I belong to Apollos. Some people here are saying that they belong to Cephas, which is actually a traditional name for the apostle Peter, who Paul kind of had an interesting relationship with throughout the duration of his ministry. It's, it's pretty widely understood that Cephas and maybe some of his followers came and introduced some real theological tensions to the early church in Corinth by bringing in a more conservative, Levitical law-based Jewish way of following Jesus. If you think back to the letter in Galatians, there's a tension going on between Christians that are arguing over whether or not you have to be circumcised in order to be a follower of Jesus. And that is a, is a sneak peek at maybe some of the tension that Cephas had brought into this early church community in Corinth. So Cephas, Peter, he's the conservative voice calling them back to the truth, reminding them of the law, of all of the hoops that they probably need to jump through in order to actually be a full member of the body of Christ. Which again, it's appealing to folks, right? Paul, on the other hand, is the progressive of the group, believe it or not. Because remember, he has been called by God to do what has never been done before. And Paul's work is what leads to Christian communities like ours. He's been called to start and support and maintain and pour into Christian communities that are made up of both Jews and Gentiles. 
you can remember the words of Paul saying there is no Jew or Gentile, right? No slave or free, only children of God. He's trying to build communities of believers who are willing to look past everything that could divide them and instead realize that their identity in Christ is a whole lot bigger than any of those things. So maybe now you can see just a little bit what I saw this week in my, in my preparation, that the Corinthians have effectively divided themselves into parties. Some are flocking to a smooth rhetoric that lives up to their notion of wisdom for that day. Some are flocking to a more conservative Jewish theology that might have claimed to be more righteous than whatever it is that Paul had brought and offered them. And then, of course, some call themselves followers of Paul, their founder, the one who brought this message of hope, the message of the gospel to this town. I would venture to guess that as you hear me break down the different categories that they are flocking to, that you almost feel like you've you've lived this. That's kind of how I felt when I was reading those breakdowns of Apollos and Peter and Paul and how their messages may have been different and why they may have attracted different people. I mean, are we not the same? Do we not divide ourselves in similar ways? I mean, I I just couldn't read this this week and not think about how we put ourselves and put others into into categories, into conservative and progressive, how how we choose to follow politicians and prescribe to their political system, sometimes just based off of the way they make us feel, based off of how they speak and how they carry themselves, how they articulate their thoughts. And I'm not saying all of this to demonize politics at all. That is completely not my point. Because here's the reality about human beings, or at least what I believe the reality is about human beings. That if it wasn't Bush or Kerry, and if it wasn't Apollos or Cephas, we would just find something else. Because that's what we do in our natural state, right? We pick sides. We disagree. We have different preferences. It just seems to be a little bit more intense when it comes to our political beliefs. Paul's point in this letter, and I think what we need to hear from Paul this morning, is that when that disagreement, when those divisions, when those party lines, when they seep into the life of a local church, and this is strong language, y'all, but this is the language that Paul ends this passage with. When, When those divisions seep into the life of the local church, Paul says we are emptying the cross of power. And I think the reason he says that is because we are claiming to be followers of Jesus in one hand, a man who invites all to his table, who offers grace to all who seek it, and yet instead we find ourselves acting like Christ has been divided, which is something else that Paul says in this passage. The challenge that Paul issues here for the church in Corinth, and I believe for us today, is that if we are a people who claim to follow this Savior, I think we have to reflect the invitation of the Savior, making room for all around the table, realizing that no one is worthy of the grace that he offers, including us, remembering, as Paul hints, that Christ was crucified for all, not just followers of Paul or Apollos or Cephas. For some reason, that language really struck me this week. It was like I couldn't get it out of my head. Emptying the cross of power. 
Maybe it's because that is the direct opposite of what I hope to do each and every day when I live my life. I think I realized that that might be one of my greatest fears, is that without knowing it, my actions would in some way empty the cross of power. It made myself begin to ask the question, how can we be a people who are doing the opposite of that? How can we be a people who are filling the cross with power, who are not pointing to ourselves, but instead are pointing to Christ crucified? How can we be a people who are bound together by the cross instead of trying to partition it out based on our preferences? And I think one way that we can do that is to leave party lines outside of these doors. I mean, that's one of the things that I love the most about the United Methodist Church, that we call ourselves and we strive to be what we say is a big tent church. I grew up in the United Methodist Church, so I had always heard that language, and I thought that every church was like that. And then I visited a few other churches, and I realized that every church is not like that. That is one of my absolute favorite things about what it means to be a United Methodist. Because it means I know that when I look out at you, I am confident that you fall all over the political spectrum. And I think that's the way that it should be, because we should be able to learn from one another, to be diverse. We should also have the faith and the knowledge of who Jesus is to be willing to say, yes, I recognize that I may be sitting in a pew with someone who doesn't agree with me on everything, but my identity as a follower of Jesus is so much greater than that. And they too are a beloved child of God. I think we fill the cross with power and we're willing to look at people the way that we see Jesus over and over again, look at and treat people, valuing them again for their identity as a child of God over whatever other labels they may have carried. I think we fill the cross with power when we understand and and we lean on the fact that the kingdom of God includes people of all walks of life, all political views, all skin colors. I think we point to Christ crucified when we're willing to love our neighbor as ourselves, especially when the sign in their yard is not our political candidate. My prayer is that we would be a people who do not try and divide Christ, that we wouldn't be a people who empty the cross of its power, but that instead we would be a people who point to Christ crucified, Not just for us, but for all. My prayer is that we would be better than the church in Corinth. My prayer is that we would be better than my fifth grade class. That feels like low-hanging fruit, but still, it's my prayer. That this would be a place, right? That this chapel, that this church would be a place that unlike the world around us, where all would have a seat at the table, that all would come in these doors and know that whoever they are, they are offered this grace, where all would be able to come and know that they are loved. And that is only possible if we are a people who are bound together by the cross rather than trying to divide it. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey friends, I just wanted to take a moment and say thank you for tuning into our message this week in the gathering. We hope you found it meaningful and life-giving. 
As always, you're invited to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m., either in person here in the chapel or online. If you want to know more about who we are at Bluff Park United Methodist Church, you're invited to check out our website. There you'll find out who we are, what we have going on, and how you can be a part of it. As always, friends, if there's anything that we can do for you, you're invited to reach out to us. We are here to help you and support you in any way that we can. We hope that you're having a great week, and we look forward to seeing you soon.